This podcast is brought to you by the Reformed Witness Committee of Hope Protestant Reformed Church in Walker, Michigan. It is our goal to spread our distinct Protestant Reformed views based on the Word of God and the Reformed Confessions. We hope that this message is edifying to you. The following podcast is part two of four of Professor Hanko's series, Our Creedal Heritage. I want to approach the, uh, the subject of the ecumenical creeds of the 4th and 5th and perhaps 6th centuries from a particular and unique viewpoint. It's very difficult for me in the time that I have tonight to try to give you some sense of what these confessions are all about, and I refer particularly to the Nicene-Constantinopolitan Creed, the Creed of Chalcedon, and the so-called Athanasian Creed, or Athanasian Confession. It's very difficult to give you some sense of the power of these creeds, and some sense of the importance of them in the church. And that's difficult for me to do in such a short time because these creeds arose out of the bosom of the church itself when the church was caught up in a bitter and furious struggle that just about tore the church to pieces. There were so many factors that were playing in the whole controversy that led to the adoption of the Nicene-Constantinopolitan Creed that one should be aware of. And in order to be aware of these factors that all were playing in the controversy and in the final formation of the creed, you almost have to immerse yourself for a period of time in the dusty past and try to put yourself in the position of some of the theologians of the church and what they were up against and how they coped with difficult situations and so on and so forth. And I can't possibly go into all that. But I want to make a few general statements about this entire period from Nicaea or pre-Nicaea when the controversy started through to the adoption of the so-called Athanasian Creed and make a few general remarks about the characteristics of the age. In the first place, you have to remember, and this I consider to be of crucial importance, that the church was in her doctrinal infancy. If I may put it that way, the tree of the truth, to use a figure I used last week, was little more than a sapling, and the church understood very little of the truth of the scriptures. It was confronted with serious problems, confronted with attempted solutions to theological questions to which the church had no answer. And that was simply due to the fact that the knowledge of scripture was very meager. That means, in the first place, of course, that men who proposed solutions to the problems that confronted the church were not necessarily heretics, even though their solutions were condemned by the church. The mere mere setting forth of a solution to a problem by someone struggling with the question did not automatically brand him as a heretic even though he proved to be dead wrong. And it didn't brand him as a heretic because there were no standards to go by, no confessions that the church had made, no formulated doctrines about questions of the truth. He became a heretic, and almost all of them did, when the church as a whole examined his position waited in the light of Scripture and said to that man or to his followers, what you say is wrong. That does not do justice to the Scriptures. The church frequently did that. It said to any number of men, 
by official synodical decisions. We don't know yet what the answer to your questions are. But we do know this, your answer will not do. What you propose is wrong. When the church spoke on that, and the man persisted in maintaining his views in spite of what the church said, he became a heretic, but not prior to that. The second consideration that has to be remembered is that people in those days took their theology seriously. Those were not the times that we live in today where tolerance is the password of of any church member and where everyone is on the road to heaven and where everyone has a right to his own opinion and where everyone is to be commended for his sincerity even though what he believes is dead wrong. That was an age when men were serious about theology. So serious, in fact, that they became extraordinarily agitated. To read the history of these controversies is is an experience that makes one almost shake his head and say, how could they be so vehement? After all, these controversies were controversies which spread throughout the entire empire, the Roman Empire, where the church had been established. If you can picture in your mind the Mediterranean world, the church extended from Spain in the west all the way to Persia in the east, and from Britain in the north all the way to Ethiopia and the northern part of the Sahara Desert in the south and all the areas in between. While the controversy was raging, nasty letters were written. Bishops hollered at each other at the top of their lungs. Synodical meetings ended in violence. Soldiers had to be called in some time to keep the peace. The Council of Chalcedon, for example, was originally scheduled to be held in Nicaea, but it was moved to Chalcedon because Chalcedon happened to be right across the Bosporus from Constantinople. And Constantinople was the eastern capital of the empire, and there were thousands of troops there who could be moved by boat across the Bosporus at a moment's notice in case rioting and violence broke out on the council. Synods hurled anathemas at each other like lightning bolts and excommunications of every conceivable sort were bandied about by everyone who thought that he was in the right and all all others were in the wrong. It became such a violent controversy at times that the only conclusion one can come to is that God in marvelous and miraculous ways continued and kept and preserved his church. Another factor that entered into the whole controversy was the close relationship that existed between church and state At the Council of Nicaea, the great Constantine was on the throne of the empire. Constantine was born in France, and he was destined, he thought, for the throne of the empire. And so he took his troops that were under him from France, then called Gaul, and marched on Rome and fought the great battle of the Milvian Bridge. But the night before, he was supposed to have seen a a sign in the sky of a cross. And underneath the cross, he saw the words, so he said, In this sign conquer. And so he had sewed a cross, or had his soldiers sew a cross on the shields uh, uh, that they carried into battle and told them that it was in the name of the cross of Christ that they were going to conquer the Roman Empire. He succeeded and became emperor, and the first thing he did was call a halt to all persecution and establish the closest possible relationship between the state and the church. The Council of Nicaea and all subsequent ecumenical councils were called by emperors. Constantine himself presided at the Council of Nicaea. Uh, 
no decrees of the council could be put into effect apart from the approval of Constantine. And he set a precedent which other emperors followed and which kept their noses in ecclesiastical affairs. Imagine holding a synod of the Protestant Reformed churches with either President Bush himself present at the synod or one of his cabinet members. The result was, of course, that everyone curried the favor of the emperor because he possessed the power in the empire. That was a factor that was constantly playing in all these controversies. Another factor that I consider far more important, and I'm going to have a little bit more to say about this a little later, is the factor that although the church was one from Spain all the way to Persia, and from Great Britain all the way to the northern reaches of the Sahara. Nevertheless, its unity was not all that strong. The most basic division in the church was a division between the east and the west. And when I'm talking about the east and the west now, and I'm not going to try to draw any maps here, by the West, I refer to everything west of Greece, which would include Italy, Spain, Europe, transalpine Europe, and North Africa, up to Algeria. The Eastern Church consisted of Asia Minor, Greece, Syria, Palestine, Egypt, and points east. There was great, great difference between those two parts of the church. In the first place, the, the Eastern Church was Greek-speaking, and the Western Church was Latin-speaking. That in itself was a barrier to communication, not easy to overcome. In the second place, and more important to my mind, was the fact that Although the Eastern Church and the Western Church were both composed, generally speaking, of descendants of Japheth, to go way back now to Noah, nevertheless, they were composed of two branches of Japheth, the Eastern Church being Greek in its orientation. God has so divided the nations and the races that each individual race and each individual nation has its own peculiar mind. I'm sure you have had opportunity to talk with our Chinese students who have been studying at the seminary and who have come to us from Singapore. If you have talked with them about church matters and ecclesiastical affairs and theological questions, and you were at all sensitive to what they were saying, you could not help but notice that sometimes it seemed to you as if you were talking past each other. Those from the Orient ask questions that make you scratch your head in puzzlement. Where are they coming from? What kind of question is that in the context of what we are discussing? And they think the same thing about us because the Oriental mind is fundamentally different from the Western mind. Well, so it was in the, in the church. The Eastern mind or Greek mind was speculative, metaphysically speculative, given to philosophy. It carried as its burden the whole load of Greek philosophy going all the way back to Plato and Aristotle and the Neoplatonists. And it was given over to do its theology in a rationalistic, speculative, theorizing fashion. While the West, on the other hand, the Western mind, the Roman mind, the Latin mind, was practical, down to earth. Will it work? Never mind the theory. We're interested in results. That's why Rome produced this massive body of jurisprudence, which became the basis for all Western law. 
from the time of the Roman Empire until today. American constitutional law has its roots in Roman jurisprudence. Rome was not interested and the Roman mind was not interested in theoretical speculation. It was far more concerned about getting to work, producing a theology that meant something practical in the lives of men. Those two characteristics spelled trouble. Although the Eastern Church and the Western Church did not split until the year 1043, nevertheless, there was something inevitable about the split that ultimately came. And the interesting part of it is that the controversies which we're going to be discussing tonight were almost exclusively limited to the Eastern Church and had almost no effect on the Western Church at all. And indeed, all the heresies with which the church had to cope arose out of the Eastern Church. While the Western Church, while it struggled too with many of the same questions, was nevertheless almost always found on the side of orthodoxy and genuine biblical truth. Council of Nicaea, for example, was composed almost exclusively of delegates from the Eastern Church. There were only just a few representatives from the Western Church sent by the Bishop of Rome. Final remark I have to make is the most important of all, and that is this. That as the Spirit of Truth, of whom we talked last week, works in the church and leads and guides the church into the truth, his guidance of the church into the truth is not an arbitrary guidance. It is not without its own magnificent purpose and plan. The very first truth with which the church had to come to grips and which it took 150 years for the church to define was the truth of the divinity of our Lord Jesus Christ. Why was that the first truth that was revealed to the church by the spirit of truth? Well, the answer to that question ought to be obvious to you all. In the first place, that's the truth of which Jesus himself says, on this rock will I build my church. And the reference is to the confession of Peter. Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. If you look at it from the viewpoint of Satan, it's no wonder that Satan launched his most vicious attack against that truth before any other, when he discovered that persecution was not succeeding in destroying the church, because he knew if he could destroy that truth and cut away the foundation of the church of Jesus Christ, the church would never be built. But Satan too is under the sovereign control of God, and Satan too must serve the purposes of God's works through the Spirit of Christ in the church. And it was exactly as Satan saw with with a cunningness that makes him the devil that he is, that this was the fundamental truth, so God used his evil purposes to lead the church into that truth first of all. From a certain point of view, no other development of the truth was possible until that truth was established. It was in the first half of the fifth century due to the work of Augustine that the great doctrines of anthropology and soteriology were laid down. The doctrines of the fall of Adam, of original sin, of total depravity, 
of sovereign and particular grace, of limited atonement, of double predestination, of irresistible salvation through the work of the Spirit. But there was no way that Augustine could ever have established those truths in soteriology or anthropology, except first the church had laid down the fundamental truth. Jesus Christ is holy, completely, truly God. Athanasius put it well at the Synod of Nicaea, and this is always to me the most fascinating aspect of that synod. Athanasius said, we must not, brethren, discuss this truth of the divinity of Christ as an abstract, metaphysical, philosophical question. But we must remember that the question has to do with our salvation. We believe that salvation is the work of God. We believe that salvation is to be found in the cross of Christ alone. Therefore, Christ has to be God or our salvation is forever impossible. That was the heart of the matter. And that was the wisdom, the magnificent wisdom of God, as by the spirit of truth, he led the church to this fundamental doctrine, first of all. And that's going to be the theme of what I have to say tonight. The question which the early church faced and that question arose early in her history, was simply this. It's a very simple question that can be simply stated. Christianity holds as a fundamental and cardinal doctrine of the faith that there is one true God who is called in Scripture Father. Over against all the polytheism of the heathen and the pantheon of gods which the heathen have, Christianity identifies itself as saying there is only one God. But, and that's where the question arose, why then do the scriptures say that in addition to the fact that God the Father is God, that Jesus Christ, his Son, is God? How can that be? Do we believe in a plurality of gods after all? If God the Father is divine and God the Son is divine, not to mention God the Holy Spirit, no one quite dared to talk about him. Are we not at least committing ourselves to the view that there is a plurality of gods? And if not, if we are to maintain the, preposi the proposition that Christianity adheres to monotheism, one only God, how can we say that Jesus Christ is divine? That was the question. Now you may kind of shrug your shoulders a little bit about that, and you may say to yourself, well, how can they be so stupid? The answer is obvious. But is it? Is it obvious to a church that is in its infancy? Is it obvious to a church that doesn't even have the vocabulary that we have to express these doctrines. The word Trinity, for example, is not found in the Bible. The word person is not found in the Bible, not in the sense in which we use it in connection with the doctrine of the Trinity. The word essence or substance, when we say God is one in essence, is not a term that is found in the Bible. These weren't terms that were unfamiliar to the men in the church, but they were terms that had a variety of meanings, terms that were frequently used by heretics to express heretical ideas. How to express what the church believed in an adequate vocabulary when Scripture provided the church with no such terminology? Well, all kinds of answers were proposed to that as solutions to the problem, and I'm not going to begin to go into them all tonight. But the most common answer that was proposed was this, that there was only one God, 
and that that one God was only one in person. But that one God who was one in person and who is called in Scripture Father reveals himself in three different ways. He reveals himself as creator. He reveals himself as redeemer. He reveals himself as sanctifier or savior. When he reveals himself as creator, he's father. When he reveals himself as atoner or redeemer, he's son. When he reveals himself as sanctifier, he's Holy Spirit. Well, that sounded plausible and various technical names were get, given to those three modes of revelation. But the church took a long, hard look at that position and said, no, that's not right. The Bible says a whole lot more about our Lord Jesus Christ than that he is only a way in which the Father reveals himself. And so the church said, that must be rejected. That is heresy. Another solution that was proposed, this by an astute theologian out of Egypt by the name of Origen, a man who in his theology was way ahead of his times, a man of genius, and a man who was totally devoted to the cause of the church. In fact, the story is told of Origen that when his father was killed, dying the death of a martyr for the sake of his faith, that Origen was determined to give his own life as a martyr and was ready to rush out of the house and throw himself into the arms of the law and make his confession so that he could die a martyr's death, much to the dismay of his mother. The only way his mother finally prevented him from doing this was to take every stitch of his clothes and hide them in a place where he could not find them. And so Origen's modesty was too great to permit him to go out into the public streets without a stitch of clothes on, and that prevented him from dying a martyr's death. He proposed, however, in his theology an interesting and almost correct solution to the problem. He said this, and that language will sound familiar to you of the 21st century. God is God and Christ is God, but the relationship being one of father and son is a relationship of, and here's the key word, generation. The father generates the son. The first man to use that word became a very crucial, a very crucial word and has endured in our vocabulary to the present. But he made one mistake. And that mistake was this, that he said the Father's work of generation is an act of God's will. And that's wrong, dead wrong, heretically wrong. Although at the time when Origen proposed it, you could hardly call it a heresy. If generation is an act of God's will, and this will give you some little idea of the complexity of the issues, if the act of generation is an act of God's will, it is an act outside of God's being. God's will extends to his counsel. God's will extends to creation. God's will extends to providence. If God's will extends to generation, then it along with creation and providence and God's counsel are all outside of his own being. While the truth of the matter is that the generation of the Son by the Father is a personal attribute of the Father within the unity of the Trinity that is part of God's very being and without which he would not be God. I don't want to go into detail on the, uh, on the question. I'm only stating it here, but... I recall about four or five years ago, I had a lengthy correspondence with a theologian in the British Isles who had a doctorate in theology, as a matter of fact, one of, from one of the prestigious universities in the British Isles, and who tried to defend the proposition that the generation of the Son by the Father was an act of God's will. 
and not a necessary act that belonged to the life of the Trinity itself. It told him if he believed that, he would become in time a pantheist because he put the generation of the Son on the same level as creation. I think eventually he was convinced, but I tell you this only to show you that the issue is a current theological issue. Origen was a heretic. Although strangely enough, no one in the early church took any decisions on a synodical level or on the level of a local church concerning his view. The whole of Nicaea began with a controversy in Alexandria in Egypt. Alexandria was one of the outstanding seaports in the Mediterranean basin, in the Nile Delta, very, very old city. It had been built by Alexander the Great prior to the birth of Christ, who had named the city after himself. It was a huge city. It was the, the point in the empire where all the trade from the east, almost all the trade from the east, from the exotic Orient, from Persia and beyond, from India, met the trade from the West. It was a seething cauldron of commerce, education, ideas, competing philosophies, and men grasping for money. In that city of Alexandria was a church. The bishop of that church was a man by the name of Alexander, who had received his name from his parents from the city of his birth. He was an orthodox man. He had a presbyter or an elder in his congregation by the name of Arius. Arius was a theologian in his own right of considerable skill. Arius was acquainted with this view of Origen, and in fact Origen himself taught for years in the school in Alexandria. Arius latched onto this notion of origin and said, yes, that's the solution to the problem. The relationship between the Father and the Son is one of generation, but that generation is an act of God's will. Without going into all the details of that, let me point out to you that it is precisely that position which led Arius to his view that Christ was indeed God, that he was the highest of all creatures, that he was from all eternity, without beginning and without end, but that for all that, he was created. There was a time way back in eternity when he was not. And although in almost all respects, he was superior to every single creature in heaven and on earth, and in almost all respects equal to God, he was not quite. He was inferior because he was created. That was the view of Arius. That view caught hold and it spread through the east like wildfire. Alexander was too orthodox a man to swallow that, and Alexander called a, a local synod to deal with the problem, and Arius was summarily condemned for his position and deposed from his office of presbyter and when he failed to repent and confess his sin he was excommunicated. When he continued to teach in the city anyway, as heretics always do, he was driven literally out of the city and sent into exile. But he fled to Palestine and Syria above Palestine and Eastern Asia Minor where he was unusually influential in spreading his views. That was the source of the problem that led to the Council of Nicaea. I don't want to go into all the controversy. I only want to make a, I always have to chuckle about this a little bit. I only want to make a passing remark of, uh, about the, the dilemma in which Constantine found himself, the emperor. I am sure, I don't know whether Constantine saw any crosses in the sky. We had a student in the early years of our churches who came to the seminary because he saw a cross in the sky too. 
so uh, and put that much stock in it. But I'm sure of one thing, and that is this, that Constantine adopted Christianity and made it the official religion of the empire because the Roman Empire was on the verge of collapse. It was characterized by a deadly moral rot that was eating at the vitals of the empire. It had given itself over to luxury of every sort and it was placating the people with the promises of bread and circuses. In fact, America, you read Gibbon's Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire, and there are pages in, pages in that classical book when you think your description of the United States of America today. Constantine knew that. Constantine knew that the empire was on the verge of disintegration, and he saw Christianity as the one possibility of pumping new life into the empire and of unifying it on the basis of a common commitment to the religion called Christianity. And here, when he had hopes of achieving his goal, those wretched Christians were at each other's throat and pulling each other's hair and screaming at each other because they couldn't agree on the doctrine of the divinity of Jesus Christ. No matter what he tried, it didn't help. Some of his most powerful emissaries were sent to the church to bump heads and to knock heads together and try to get these stubborn Christians to see things his way. But these people took theology seriously, as I said, and all efforts failed. To make a long story short, he finally hit upon calling all the churches together to the town of Nicaea in the year 325. I say almost all the representatives at the synod were Eastern bishops, but there were a few from the West. There were three parties at that synod. One, the Arian party, Arius and his followers, who were heretics. The second, an Orthodox party that was led by Alexander of Egypt, and you will recognize the name and you read any of this history of the church, you will meet this man again. And his deacon, whose name was Athanasius. Now I happen, in the course of my church history studies, to have fallen in love with Athanasius. He, to my mind, the epitome of a theologian totally dedicated to the cause of the truth. If you would ask me to pick two of the great theologians of the first 500 years, 400 years of the church's existence, there isn't any doubt in my mind that the two would be Athanasius and Augustine, Bishop of Hippo. But he was only a deacon at this time. They were orthodox. They were theologically aware. They were intellectually gifted, but they were very small, numbering about 10 to 12 men while the synod was how many? 381. The third party was a large majority that stood in the center between Arius and Athanasius. A middle party that didn't want the outright heretical position of Arius, who denied that Christ was fully God, but couldn't get a hold of the orthodox position promoted by Alexander and Athanasius. And we're really at a loss as to how to express the truth which they only very vaguely understood. Well, a creed was proposed by Arius, first of all. I don't know how he had the temerity to come with a creed. He laid it on the table of the synod and asked the synod to adopt it, and the synod just about tore him to pieces. So it was immediately withdrawn. And then a man by the name of Eusebius. There were two men by that name there, but this is Eusebius from Caesarea. He proposed a creed. And the creed which he proposed is at bottom the Nicene Creed. The weakness of the creed which he proposed was its lack of one word, homoousion. Now that's a strange word. It's a Greek word. Homo, same word as homogenized, that appears on our milk, it means same, and usion means essence. 
That word did not appear in the creed of Eusebius. But that was the word which Alexander and Athanasius were pushing for. And that, finally, was the word that was inserted in the creed, which was formerly adopted by the Synod of Nicaea. I don't even want to take the time to read the entire creed, but I want to point you to a few statements in it. If you will turn to the back of your Psalter or to this book of creeds or to your, your uh, syllabus which you have, the Nicene Creed is there. The key part of the creed is this. I believe in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, there's that word generation, begotten of the Father before all worlds, God of God, light of lights, true God of true God, begotten, not made, as Arius said, and then the key phrase, being of one essence with the Father, that is, Homo usion with the Father, of the same essence with the Father. There is the heart of the Nicene Creed. Now, you will notice too that it immediately connects that doctrine, and that was under the influence of Alexander and Athanasius, with the doctrine of our salvation. He was made man crucified also under Pontius Pilate, and so on and so forth. Every time I read the Nicene Creed, I am thankful to God once again for it. I breathe a silent prayer of gratitude for that marvelous creed which established against almost insurmountable odds the doctrine of the absolute divinity of our Lord Jesus Christ. The rock was laid on the basis of which Christ builds his church. Um, the Council of Nicaea settled nothing, at least temporarily. It was a clear and concise and unambiguous statement of the truth, but the differences of opinion and the controversies in the church remained and in fact got more bitter. Another party arose in the church. That was really that middle party that was at Nicaea that constituted the majority that eventually signed the, the creed of Nicaea, who took as their watchword not homoousion, but homoousion. And both of these, of course, were in distinction from another position, which was heterousion. This was the position of Arius. Heteros means heterodoxy, you know, different. Christ was of a different being than the Father. This term means of the same essence as the Father. But that middle party added this little letter I. And that made this word not the same, but like. Christ was of an essence which was like the Father's essence. That's another, you know, church history is so in interesting because it has all these little nuances to it, these little things that when you think about them, make you chuckle too. You, in the midst of all of this controversy and struggle that just about tore the church to pieces, they were fighting about the little letter I, whether that was right or not. Can you imagine that happening in our day when people talk about the most profound and clear-cut theological issues as splitting hairs and arguing over minor points and making mountains out of molehills and all sorts of things, when the church spent the better part of 60 years arguing about the letter I, whether or not that was a proper formulation of the relationship between Christ the Son and Christ the Father. 
I don't think the controversy would have been settled. It was so intense, so furious, that even Athanasius, who later became bishop of Alexandria after Alexander died, was exiled from his congregation no less than five times because he defended Nicene Orthodoxy against these rascals who wanted to slip that eye in there. One time he was exiled off into the far reaches of Transalpine Europe in the city of Trier, surrounded by barbarians for the most part. Another time he fled to Rome because at least the Bishop of Rome was Orthodox. Three different times he found safety in the deserts of Egypt. Five times driven from his congregation until the name of Athanasius became Athanasius Contramundum, Athanasius against the world. I think it was Jerome, another church father, who said, the whole world groaned and became Arian. Athanasius stood almost alone. Read his biography in my book, Portraits, and you will find it interesting. And your admiration for Athanasius will grow. What a man of God he was. He absolutely would not budge when everyone, including the emperor, was against him in the entire eastern part of the church. When they attempted to assassinate him, secretly, when they stormed his church with troops. I can still see Athanasius on the pulpit as the troops came marching in the various doors to take him away to prison. And Athanasius calmly commanded the soldiers to stand still for a few moments while he read with his congregation Psalm 136 and asked the people to respond to every reading of the psalm. A man who indeed can serve as an example to everyone caught up in the bitter battle of the defense of the faith. But the only way the controversy finally was solved was not because of the fact that these antagonists came together, but just because of the fact that so many years passed that the whole generation died that was enwrapped in such bitter disputations. And a new generation of theologians arose, especially in the East, but also some in the West. And the new generation of theologians took a fresh and new look at things and came to the unmistakable conclusion that the decisions of Nicaea had been correct from the outset. And the result of it is that another council was called the Second Ecumenical Council in Constantinople, the capital of the empire in the east, 381. That council at Constantinople in 381, first of all, affirmed the orthodoxy of the Nicene Creed and altered not one word of it, but insisted that it was a clear and unambiguous statement of the truth. Secondly, however, and this was more important, the Council of Constantinople added a part. They added a few other points here and there of minor significance, but they added an important part in the third paragraph. Nicaea's Creed read only, and I believe in the Holy Ghost, period. The Council of Constantinople added these words, The Lord and giver of life, who proceedeth from the Father, who with the Father and the Son together is worshipped and glorified, who spake by the prophets that was added. In other words, by the addition of Constantinople, the creed was made to affirm not only the doctrine of the divinity of Christ, but the doctrine of the Trinity, which had not been set forth officially until that time. 
I skipped, as you probably noticed as you were following, the three words, and the Son, who proceedeth from the Father and the Son. Therein lies a story. The creed as adopted by Constantinople did not have in it the words, and the Son. Those three words, which are actually only one word in, in Latin, the word phili, this is an I, filioqua, and the son, was added to the Nicene Constantinopolitan Creed by the Synod of Toledo in Spain in 1580. No, not 1580, 580. I think 580 is the date can't even remember my own telephone number, much less all these dates. But I think Constantinople? Oh, that's a mistake. Correct that, will you? The date of Constantinople is 381. Of that I am certain. As certain as I know my telephone number. Pardon? Page 15. That's a typo. The Council of Toledo added those words, and the sun. Now, I'd like to have you open your Bibles a minute because they had biblical basis for that. In those chapters, John 14, 15, and 16, uh, at the end of chapter 15 in verse 26, the Lord says to his disciples, But when the Comforter is come, whom I will send unto you from the Father, even the Spirit of truth, which proceedeth from the Father, he shall testify of me. That was the biblical proof for the doctrine of adding to the creed and the Son, so that it was said of the Spirit, he proceeded from the Father and the Son. Now, the trouble was that by this date, the Bishop of Rome was pretty much already Pope, and Popes were on the whole an arrogant lot. And the Bishop of Rome at this time, who was assuming to himself papal powers already in 580, single-handedly and high-handedly added the words and the Son, as adopted by the Synod of Toledo, to the Nicene Creed and made it official by papal declaration. Now, you may do that. In the first place, no church, no broad assembly even, no synod technically may change creeds that belong to churches other than their own. The Protestant Reformed churches, for example, should they want to change, say, the Belgian Confession? Have no right to do that all on their own. The Belgian Confession is not just the creed of the Protestant Reformed churches. It's the creed of the churches in the Netherlands. It's the creed of the churches in South Africa. And wherever there are Reformed churches established, also in our own land, it's their official creed. The only way that it is permissible to change a creed that is a broader possession than that of one church is to consult with all the churches together. Now I know, I can see it on your faces, that isn't observed today. Every Reformed church willy-nilly changes its creeds whenever it feels like it, makes new creeds, alters creeds, drops parts of creeds, and so on and so forth. I know they do that. But that all doesn't make it right. The Synod of Toledo had no right to begin with to change the Nicene-Constantinopolitan creed. You say the, tr the change was orthodox. The change is biblical. I agree. I agree completely. Double procession is the teaching of Scripture. The Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son. But that isn't mean that a little provincial synod off in far-off Spain can simply do with the Nicene-Constantinopolitan creed as it pleases. And then you've got that arrogant bishop of Rome who thinks that he is sufficiently powerful in the whole of the church 
to make that change official in the creed, which he promptly proceeded to do. He mightn't do that, but he did. And so that change became official, and it has come down to us that way. Now, that's all right. I don't want to quibble about that. But there is here an astonishing and remarkable lesson of history that I have to call to your attention. The Eastern Church, that is, everything east of Greece, Egypt, Palestine, Syria, Asia Minor, and points east, did not agree with that. Oh, I think one of the reasons why they didn't agree with that is that they simply thought to themselves, that miserable bishop of Rome, who in the wide world does he think he is? That he's going to tamper with that creed and push it down our throats and make us swallow it. We're not going to do it. And that was because of another factor that was playing in the church. Jealousy, extreme jealousy between the bishop of Rome and the bishop of Constantinople. And so the Eastern Church never adopted that. Now, here you have one of those anomalies in history that surprise you. God always has a way of surprising us in history, you know. It was all wrong. It was all wrong from beginning to end. And yet it was right. The spirit of truth was doing it. Toledo had no right to put it in there. The Pope had no right to put it in there. But biblically it was right. And so it came in. The Eastern Church, purely for carnal reasons, had no right to reject it. But they did. And to this day, in the Nicene Creed, as read in the Eastern Churches, the three words, and the Son, are not in it. What happened as a result of it? And here's the great lesson of history that I want to drive home to you tonight. The first one, anyway. Because they refused to add to the creed the words and the son, even though technically and church politically they may have been ever so right, they were denying by that fact the spirit of truth. What was the result? God took the spirit of truth away from them. All I ask you to do is read the history of the Eastern Church, the Greek Orthodox Church, or the Russian Orthodox Church, and you will discover that since the time of the insertion of the clause and the Son, the Eastern Church has had not one iota of development of doctrine. It has stagnated. That is, if a church can ever stagnate, a church never can. A church either moves forward in the knowledge of the truth or it slides backward. And that's what Eastern Orthodoxy has done. It has gone backward into image worship, crass mysticism, formal lip service, and liturgical worship at its worst. But look in vain in all of the writings of all of the Eastern Orthodox theologians and you will find nothing that contributes to the truth. Why not? God was angry. It was as if God was saying to the Eastern Church, you're making way too much of the church political mistake that was made when you are denying a fundamental doctrine of the faith that is found clearly in the scripture. And therefore, because you deny the spirit of truth, I will take the spirit of truth away from you, and you will be without him and his presence. While in the Western church, the Roman church, with all of its weaknesses, and with all of its liturgical trappings, and church government errors, was a church that moved forward in the knowledge of the truth until Rome at its worst stifled even that and brought about the Reformation. One text, one word in the Nicene Creed is the difference between a vibrant, truth-developing church where the Spirit of Christ was active, dead, formal, backward church where the Spirit was gone. That's the first lesson. 
Second lesson, and that involves really the whole question of the Creed of Chalcedon, and I don't have time for that tonight. I knew there wouldn't be enough time, but yeah, that's the way it is. Second lesson is this. We're not maybe going to be able to get back to this whole matter of the Christological controversies that resulted in the Creed of Chalcedon. There's one point I want to drive home tonight, and that is that the Eastern Church with its speculative mind, its tendency to be rationalistic, its constant philosophizing, its, I would almost say, mystical bent, was a church that even when the controversies were settled at Nicaea, Constantinople, and in 451, Chalcedon was not satisfied. And especially the churches in Egypt, Palestine, and Syria never were pleased with the creeds which had been adopted by the church and went on with endless wranglings about all kinds of questions. Let me just say a bit about this. There is a... I have a work home on the history of doctrine in which the author of this work, a man by the name of Pelican, easy to remember, takes the position that the creed of Chalcedon, which set down the doctrine of Christ, and you have it in your syllabus, was a creed that left unanswered, untold questions and really never solved the problems that arose in connection now with the relation between the two natures of Christ and the one person of the Son of God who united in his person the divine and the human natures. That Chalcedon simply ignored the questions that had been raised and therefore, says Pelican, took in the creed of Chalcedon a compromising position. Now it's that last sentence to which I strenuously object. Chalcedon is not compromise. I'm aware of the fact and agree completely with Pelican that all kinds of questions were left unanswered and no effort was made to placate one side or the other in the bitter controversies over the doctrine of Christ. But simply a statement was set forth without any effort to try to bring the two sides together except for the fact that it was a compromise. I agree with everything he says, except that last statement. The genius to me of the creed of Chalcedon is this, that it flatly refused to answer all these questions. And it flatly refused to answer all these questions simply because of the fact that the church has no right to probe endlessly and ceaselessly into questions on which Scripture does not speak. When we're confronted with the doctrine of Christ, Chalcedon said, in effect, in effect, didn't say this in so many words, we are confronted with mystery. God become man. God dwelling among us. Emmanuel. God with us. That's mystery. Any probing and rationalistic and speculative mind can raise dozens of questions as to how it is possible for the living God of heaven and earth, the creator of all, the eternal one, to unite himself with man and become like us in the person of the Son, except for our sin. Who can know it? Who can understand it? Who can answer the questions that a speculative mind can bring up? It's not our business. It's an object of faith. The scriptures say it is so. Now that doesn't mean that the doctrine is irrational. Oh, far from it. But it does mean this. That the wonders of God in the work of salvation in Jesus Christ are so far beyond our understanding that we can only stand in awe and praise Him who does so wondrously to save His church 
That's Chalcedon. The West was content. The East said, no, we want answers to the questions. And it went on its merry way of fighting, calling synods, hurling anathemas, coming up with novel ideas, proposing new solutions to all kinds of questions, and getting nowhere because the answers they were seeking were not to be found in the scriptures, but in their own heads where no answers to those questions can ever be found except sinful ones. That made God angry too, because the Eastern Church refused to bow before the teaching of Scripture and say, this is God's word, we are content. This we believe, the eternal Son of God, true God of true God, united in himself, the whole of the divine nature, so that he remained and continued God with our weakened human nature, so that he was like us in all things, except our sin. Thank you for listening to this message. It is our hope that it was edifying to you. Please subscribe to our podcast. We publish daily meditations. Heidelberg Catechism Lord's Day Sermons on Wednesdays, and topical podcasts on Fridays. You can find more information about us at our website, hopeprchurch.org, and you can email us with any questions or feedback at hoperwc at gmail.com. Thank you.